Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we should take a few moments to make sure we're in fellowship, to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, so that under the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we can go forward with our spiritual growth. Let's... uh, Bow our heads in prayer. I'll open in prayer in just a second. Lord, we're thankful that we have this freedom to gather together to study your word this evening. We thank you for the things that we've learned as we've gone through Genesis, thinking through the doctrines related to creation, related to the fall, related to your grace, to judgment, the dispensations and covenants, understanding that all of these doctrines are rooted and grounded in real-time historical events with real people, and that as we look at these things and as we study them, they give us a greater appreciation for how all of the Scripture fits together in an integrated whole. Now, as we continue our study tonight, looking at the life of Abraham and what we are to learn from Abraham. We pray that you would help us to keep focused, study these things, and as Abraham is a trophy of faith and trophy of your grace, we pray that that would encourage and strengthen us in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you wish, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, because we'll be looking tonight in terms of review at the life of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 down through about Genesis chapter 24, covering those just those 12 chapters. Now, while you're doing that, there's a couple of things that uh, were stuck up here for me to announce. One is to remind you about the uh, baptism service Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock at Grace Bible Church, and there's an announcement and a map like this out on the uh, table in the foyer. And then for those of you who missed it, Uh, Last Friday, it was released from the Texas Supreme Court. The decision was finally reached in a manner that had been going on since 1999. That the the background for this is in the in the 80s, in the early 80s, Ross Perot spearheaded an education reform uh, bill and legislation that, and if most of you around a while remember that. And there was a lot that was done. Well, as something slipped into that bill, and up to that time, it had been recognized as just sort of an Education Protection Act in the state of Texas that certain terms, such as college, university, degrees, terms like this that are associated with colleges, would have would be def- clearly defined by the Texas Department of Education to maintain a quality control on universities and colleges, so that we wouldn't establish degree mills in the state of Texas, which had been a problem in previous decades. Well, in the in this uh, 
this reform legislation in the 80s, some pinhead slipped in a uh, slipped some other terms in there like seminary and uh, use of terms such as bachelor of theology, master of theology, doctor of theology. Nobody really paid attention to this or did much until the uh, you got into the 90s. And by the late 90s, it was obvious that any new school, any new seminary that started had to become fully accredited and recognized by the Texas Department of Education or they couldn't use these terms. They couldn't call themselves a seminary or give out degrees with the traditional nomenclature. And Tyndale went ahead and did it in violation of the law, and they were caught and fined $173,000, and they kept carrying the case all the way to the Texas Supreme Court because their argument was that In fact, the very concept of a university came out of the cathedral schools that were started in Oxford and Paris and Rome back in the early Middle Ages. And so if you really want to get technical about it, terms like baccalaureate and magisterium for masters and doctor, those terms all came out of the church. So we don't want the state using those terms. So they presented an argument that the state was encroaching on defining qualifications for church leaders by putting restrictions on these terms. And the Texas State Supreme Court uh, recognized in an 8-0 to zero decision that Tyndale was correct, and so the fine of $173,000 was vacated, and Tyndale was not going to be held responsible for uh, their uh, court fees. So that is a uh, fantastic decision that's been made in a landmark religious freedom case. So there's an article on that out in front if you want to get that. Okay, we've been studying Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. The book of beginnings. Everything begins in Genesis, and to understand anything in the Bible, you have to go back to Genesis. To understand Revelation, you have to go back to Genesis, especially when you get to a number of things at the end of the book of Revelation, where you have the new heavens and the new earth, there's no salt sea, there's no darkness, a number of parallels between the end of the Bible and the new heavens and the new earth and the original condition before the before the fall. And everything from Genesis chapter 3, where you have the curse established, all the way up to Revelation chapter 21, you have God's plan and program to provide the perfect solution to the sin problem and the curse. And by the time you get to Revelation 21, with the new heavens and the earth, new earth, there's the statement that the curse was no more. And to even understand that sentence, that verse, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And what that shows us as believers is that the entirety of the Bible fits together as an integrated whole. And you have to be very careful to make sure that you don't go in and just pull things out of context and interpret them apart from seeing how the terminology or the themes or the symbols fit within the whole flow of divine revelation. Everything fits, fits together. God has a marvelous plan and he's revealed it in, an, in a marvelous way from Genesis to Revelation. The more you get into the technical details, I found, 
And as I study and I get into technical details and more, I realize how these things, certain things continue to pop up here and there, and then you have to connect all those dots. So it's constantly a matter of not only drilling down into the details of Scripture, but also coming back up to look at the broad themes so we don't lose the forest for the trees. And too often in Bible churches and in doctrinal churches, that's been a problem that we just drill down so technically sometimes into the minutia of Scripture that you lose the overall flow of how everything fits together. And one of the results that often happens is you start misinterpreting things because you don't see how these particular elements over here fit back with these elements over over here, and everything has to has to fit together. So we've gone through Genesis, all 50 chapters, and we've looked at all the major events, the characters, all the doctrines, and now we're just coming back for one last flyover review. We've had three three review sessions already taking us up to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel judgment we covered last time, which leads us in Genesis 11 where the author of Genesis focuses in on one family line that comes from Noah, and that's the family of Shem. And in Genesis chapter 11, starting in about verse 10, we see this as the record of Shem. So let's go back a minute in terms of our review Remember, how many divisions are there in Genesis? Four, eight. Well, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 1 1 and start all over again. <laughs> there are two major divisions. The first major division is four events dealing with the primeval or the early history of mankind, the human race. The second division deals with four people, the early history of the Jewish people. The four events are the, are what? Creation. Good. Creation, fall, flood, babble. Now, I heard a couple of people come up with something else. I didn't hear babble. I heard a babble on babble. Okay, creation, fall, flood, and Babel. In these sections, we come face to face with the divine institutions. We come face to face with the grace of God. We come face to face with judgment. And as I pointed out last time and at the beginning, one of the themes in Genesis is, is blessing and cursing, which we might transfer over into different terminology and call it grace and judgment. There's always God's grace precedes judgment. But at the Tower of Babel, the human race fails miserably one more time, and so God chooses to work through one particular individual. And so Shem's genealogy is taken. I've already looked at Shem, Ham, and Japheth as an overview, and then he comes back and just focuses in, narrows it down to just the descendants of Shem. And, of course, this becomes a very important genealogy. And why do you think, what indicates that? The numbers. See, in Genesis 10, you didn't have any numbers. You just had the fathers begat so-and-so, and you just had the lineage. 
But now you get into something that's more technical. You get numbers, and that tells you this is a very important genealogy because those numbers really make it a closed genealogy and restrict it. Now, why do you think there's, it's important to trace this genealogy? You go back to Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? The Abrahamic covenant had three parts. We know, I know everybody knows this. What are they there? Land, seed, and blessing. Where's the first time that we hear that word seed in, the, in, in Genesis? The woman, the seed of the woman will uh, defeat the seed of the serpent. And so there's a tracing of the seed descent from the woman. You have that first genealogy that's a closed genealogy with the numbers is Abraham to Seth and the descendants all the way down to Noah. And that's a closed genealogy with numbers. Now, and you can come back to Genesis chapter 11, and it's another closed genealogy. What are we doing? We're tracing the seed. You can trace through the genealogies of the Old Testament, you can trace this linear descent from Abraham to Noah, I mean, from Adam to to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way down to Moses, then down to David, and from David all the way down to Jesus. And that's why you just get a summary of that in Matthew chapter 1. The details of that descent from David and back to uh, Abraham is already laid down in the Old Testament. It's all spelled out, and there's genealogy after genealogy, and people read it and they go, why is that important? It's important because there's no errors there, and it traces that line of the seed. So we go from the creation, the fall, flood, and Babel to the last section. That covers 11 chapters. And then the last section of the book goes from chapter 12 to chapter 50. Now, if you have 50 chapters and you have two divisions, one has 11 chapters and one has 39 chapters, which section do you think is the most significant? Yeah, it's the 39 chapters. But then you ask the question, why is it that we spent more time in the first 11 chapters than in the other 39 chapters? And the answer is because that's where the battle is today. That's the foundation for everything is in those first 11 chapters. And today, that is the point at which the battle is, is being fought. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther is that if you defend the castle or the fortress at every place other than that at which it is being attacked, you'll lose the battle. And the attack is on literal 24-hour, seven-day creation in Genesis chapter 1. The battle is on the nature of man. Is he basically good? Is he basically evil? And the Bible says he's basically evil because of the problem of sin. The attack is on the whole issue of origins, and so that comes into play with dating uh, mechanisms. And I know that uh, I'm going to have to come back and do a little report sometime in the next week or two on Lucy. A few of you, yeah, yeah Lucy. Not I, not I love Lucy, but Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. When was that? Sunday night. Sunday night, I was um, uh, drive. I had to run over to my dad's. I was driving over there, and I had the radio on. 
And there's this show on Sunday night on KPRC 950 called The Show of Faith. And I used to catch this and get out of fellowship every Sunday night when we were meeting over at White Oak, remember? And, and church is out, and so we get, we get out and head home. And I'd flip on the talk show radio, and there are these four guys sharing their ignorance. There's a Southern Baptist from Houston Baptist. There's a Muslim, there's a rabbi, and there's a Roman Catholic priest. And this last Sunday night, rather, they, they, the Muslim wasn't there. I thought, well, maybe he got tired of their foolishness, but probably not. Um, and they're all so ecumenical, and we all believe the same thing, and they just gush this ecumenical love. Well, they were gushing on Sunday night with the curator of the Houston Museum of Natural Science and talking about Lucy and how wonderful it was that here we have this early ancestor to man, and they were asking him all these questions, and I could listen for about 15 seconds and then turn it off. Then it take then about five minutes later, okay, I'll turn it back on, see where they are now, and it was just the most bilious stuff. But you have to put up with this every now and then just to hear what what people are really buying into and listening to out there. So, uh, and one thing I did learn was that when they discovered these bones in Ethiopia, it was when the Beatles were in their heyday, and she was named after Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And that's just something. Next time you play Trivial Pursuit. You're going to, you're going to make that question, but that's, that's where, why she's named Lucy. And the other night, the programmer was having a lot of fun with them because every time they broke for a commercial, he'd play the theme song for the Lucy show. But anyway, we go back to the fact that this is the issue. God creates man. Man is in his image. Man is not a product of time plus chance plus anything. Man is specifically, he's carefully and wonderfully made. He is designed for a specific purpose, and he disobeys God, and we have the fall and judgment that ensues from that, and then you see the deterioration of the human race in Genesis chapter 5, leading to the uh, perversion at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and once again, man is involved with demons. Eve got involved with Satan. Now man continues this demonic involvement, and there is uh, a threat on the genetic purity of the human race, which we've studied, so God has to wipe out the majority of the human race in the flood. And what happens after the flood? They start all over. It's not perfect environment. In fact, it's perfect environment two steps removed. One step removed after the, after the fall, and now it's another step removed after the flood. But you have eight people, it seems like, and they're all part of the same family. seems like we could all get along together. But it's not long before everybody's trying to get along together against God, and the tremendous power of the judgment of the flood is is rationalized away. It is uh, it, it's changed into various mythological forms, and once again, man tries to unite him uh, unite against God in a way to protect himself from any future judgment. So he builds the ziggurat tower of Babel to try to show that he can reach the heavens, he can build it higher than God can send the waters, and all of this. So God is going to work through one man. He is going to call out Abram, who lives in Ur the Chaldees, and he's going to make a promise to Abraham that he is going to make a great nation from Abraham's descendants. And it is through that nation that he is going to bless all the rest of humanity. So there's a major dispensational shift here. 
Now, some of you have been taught that the dispensation doesn't shift until Sinai. The reason that doesn't work, the reason you don't have the age of you have the age of Israel beginning with Abraham instead of with Sinai, is because God doesn't work with anybody apart from Abraham's descendants from Genesis 12 on. You can't you can't shift that just because it's only a few in Genesis 12 through 50, ending up with about 70. Doesn't matter. God has decided that the Jews are going to be the custodians of written revelation and the covenants. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. To the Jews belong the covenants and the promises of God. And so there is a major shift in the way God is uh, dealing with things, beginning with Romans chapter 12. He is no longer going to work with mankind as a whole, but he is going to work uh, through one and only one family line. You have Abraham, who's promised a child that's going to be a miraculous child, Isaac. Isaac then uh, is the father of twins. Jacob is the younger. The younger, the older will serve the younger. So Esau becomes the uh, uh, the non-blessed line. The line goes through Jacob down to Joseph. So you have eight eight things to remember: creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Joseph, then you have it. That's it, the whole book wrapped up. And then you, you, you can hang everything else on those events. So what I'm trying to do in this review is just take us back through all of these events one last time to get it kind of fixed in our head. The prologue is the creation, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Then we have our first Toledot statement, the heavens and the earth. This is what happens to them. And that is sin. Then in 5, 1 to 6, 8, this is what happens to Adam and his descendants. And they each die. It's a constant reminder of the, the reality of the curse. 6, 9 to 9, 29, you have this is what happens to Noah in terms of the flood. Then 10, 1 to 11, 9, Noah's sons. Then you focus on Shem, 11, 10 to 26, ending with Terah in verse 26. Now, Terah lives 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Abram was probably the youngest, but he's mentioned first because he's the most important. We have the Toledot of Terah from 1127 to 2511. Then there's a short Toledot of Ishmael, just to wrap up what happens to him. Then 2519 to 3529, we have Isaac. 36.1 36.1 to 8, and 37.9, and following we have two Toledotes related to Esau in the first section, then Esau's sons in the second section, and then 37.2 to 50.26 with Jacob. The largest section is the Toledot related to Terah because Abraham is the most important. That goes back to that law of proportion that some of you covered when you were going through the Bible study methods with, with Ike. We get some background on Abraham in the New Testament in Stephen's final departing message just before they stone him in Acts 7. And he says to the Sanhedrin, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, when he's still living with the uh, polytheists down in Ur of the Chaldees. 
God said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. This is the initial command. Abraham, as we'll see, is already saved at this point. He's already saved, and God is now going to uh, call him out for a special purpose. And in verse 4 we read, Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him, he being God, moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised God promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. It is a test of faith for Abraham. This is what Hebrews 11 focuses on, is that test of faith for Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Notice both both Stephen and the writer of Hebrews emphasize the fact that this is an inheritance. And we know from our study of that word, that means a possession that he would receive, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Did he ever have possession of the land? No. God promised him, though, that he would have possession of the land. So either God couldn't fulfill his promise, or what? God's going to have to bring him back from the dead and give him the land as a, as a possession to fulfill his promise. So that's the, these guys all understood the doctrine of resurrection. They knew that in their lifetime they wouldn't get it, but that God would bring them back in resurrection and they would get it. So he lives in a land of promise as in a foreign country. The only piece of real estate he ever owned was the land around the cave of Machpelah, when he, which he bought for their burial site. Verse 10 What's his motivation? He's looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He has that personal sense of his eternal destiny. The future is so real to him in the resurrection that he will own this that he's never concerned about it in his, in his present earthly life. Now, when we go to Abraham, one of the things that we want to structure and we want to bring this out and as we develop curriculum for the kids in prep school is that Abraham is used in the New Testament in five different ways. He's used to illustrate and teach five different doctrines. The first has to do with the Abrahamic covenant, which is to Israel a doctrine that is comparable to positional truth for the believer. What do I mean by that? What I mean is our position in Christ gives us eternal security. It is an unconditional salvation contract, and we can't lose it. The same thing is true with the Abrahamic covenant to the Jews. They can't lose it. God said, I will give you the land. But there is a condition attached, and the condition attached is you won't enjoy the possession or the inheritance unless you're obedient. But the land is yours. It would be as if I were to give you the title deed for a car. The car is yours, but if you don't take care of it, it has no value to you. And the spiritual life for the believer is the same way. God gives you a new spiritual life. You're regenerate. He gives you 
all the different assets that are yours in Christ, all the different things, the 39 things that, that God gives you that are permanent plus the filling of the Holy Spirit, all that is yours at the instant of salvation. And then if you are disobedient, you don't enjoy their benefit. They're yours, but you don't enjoy the benefit and you don't enjoy inheritance, which is what comes at the judgment seat of Christ. So the Abrahamic covenant pictures positional security for the Jews. They can't lose their relationship with God as an ethnic group. God has promised to bless them because of their relationship to Abraham. The second thing is justification by faith alone. This is mentioned for in Romans 4, 1 through 25, and in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 to 14. The New Testament goes to Abraham's justification as a picture of what happens when we're justified before God. Third, in James 2, there's justification at spiritual maturity. There's two different justifications, as we've seen. Fourth, there's a spiritual advance by the faith rest drill in Abram's life. He, how does he go from justification by faith alone at salvation, his original salvation, to his just, second justification at maturity in Genesis chapter 22? How does he advance? Well, that's the whole story of his walking by faith, which is what's emphasized in Hebrews 11, 8 to 12. And we looked at 13 tests that Abraham went through, which led him in progression. He passes all the tests, utilizing, or in some cases he failed them, by not utilizing the problem-solving devices, the same spiritual skills that... God has given us. We have more. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we have occupation with Christ that he did not have. And then he's a picture of election, Romans 9 to 11. God chose Abraham to give him certain privileges and blessings in relationship to the covenant. And then last but not least, he's the picture of missions. All nations will be blessed by him. The foundation of missions. Why is it important to take the gospel to people who haven't heard? So that they will receive the blessing by virtue of Abraham. Okay, first of all, the Abrahamic covenant. We've gone through this many times. I'm just going to hit the high points. The key terms are land, seed, and blessing. Specific real estate, it's defined. The borders are defined in the scripture. You can't go, come along and say, well, Abraham thought of it as a land between the Euphrates and uh, the river of Egypt and, uh, and the Mediterranean. But uh, he, he, when, when the Jews blew it, God changed it, and that land is now heaven. Now, you've got to have a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture. The land is still the same land. The Jews still have a God-given right to that piece of real estate. And nobody else in the world, no other ethnic group in the whole world, has a right to their homeland. The French don't have a God-given right to France. The Germans don't have a God-given right to Germany. The Chinese don't have a God-given right to China. We certainly don't have a God-given right to America. We haven't been around long enough. Uh, the British don't have a God-given right to Britain. But the Jews have a God-given right to that piece of real estate. And it's the only piece of real estate on the planet that has been the literal home and residence of God. That's one of the things that, that has always struck me uh, when I've gone to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, that this is a piece of real estate 
that has truly been set apart by God and his Shekinah presence, his dwelling presence was right there. Hadn't been anywhere else. That's where it happened. So it's a unique, distinct piece of real estate. That's why it's legitimate to call it the Holy Land. Not because it's holy in the sense of pure, but holy, the root meaning of the word holy is set apart or distinct. It is set-apart land. There's no other land set apart. These elements of the Abrahamic covenant, as we'll see, as we've seen, are further developed in later covenants. The land covenant of Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7.14 expands the fact that the seed is going to come from the descendants of David and the blessing is expanded in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, that's important. Just remember that on Wednesday night when we hit Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8 is all about that New Covenant, and there's a lot to say and to talk about that New Covenant. So, the Abrahamic Covenant is articulated numerous times in Genesis to make sure that the descendants of Abraham understand their position and what God has promised. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have the God promising a land, He promises descendants, and a blessing. General statement in those first three verses. Then in Genesis 12, 7, he reiterates the land promised to Abraham. I've given this land to you. Genesis 13.5, he says, all the land that you can see, takes him up and says, okay, give part of the land to let to uh, uh, Lot. All the land that you can see, I'm going to give to you. Then in Genesis 15.18, it's defined as uh, bordered by the river of Egypt and the river Euphrates, takes in all of the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, much of Syria, a lot of modern Iraq. Uh, all is part of the original land that God promised, but the Jews have never controlled all of it. It has never been their full possession. 17.8, it's defined as the whole land of Canaan. Further, the descendants are going to promise to be a great nation, and in 12.2, that's the original statement. In 13.16, they're defined as being as numerous as the dust of the earth. In 15.5, they're going to be as numerable as the stars in the sky. In Genesis 16, the God uh, states several times the descendants will be innumerable. And then in Genesis 17, he says there will be a multitude of nations. Kings will be descended from you. Divine protection for Abraham is stated in Genesis chapter uh, 12, verse 2. Those who curse you, God says, I will curse. And there's two different words for cursing there. The first word is the word for a light curse, just to show disrespect. Somebody who disses Abraham, God says he's going to curse them harshly. You don't have to be as anti-Semitic as Ahmadinejad or as Adolf Hitler or as any number of Russian Tsars to invoke God's uh, protection clause in Genesis 12:2, just have a attitude of disrespect for the Jews. Genesis 15, 
God warned Abraham that as part of his plan, there would be future slavery and deliverance. They'd be taken out of the land for over 400 years before they would return. But in 177, he stated that this was an eternal covenant of promise that would not be reversed. Okay, all that deals with the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is important because this is the foundation for all the subsequent covenants in the New Testament. The Mosaic covenant is going to define, even though it's temporary, it's going to define how the redeemed people are supposed to live in the land. The land's defined by the Abrahamic covenant. Then you have the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. So everything else from Genesis 12 to the end of the Bible, everything else is based on the Abrahamic covenant. If you don't understand that, you can't understand why Jesus came to the cross at all. It, it goes right back to that seed promise. Now, the next thing is just to understand justification by faith alone. And this is based in Genesis 15, verse 6, in a statement about Abraham's justification. And there God has appeared to Abraham, and he has reiterated the fact in the first uh, four or five verses that the descent is going to come from Abraham's own loins, not through Eliezer. He thought he could, he could solve God's promise. I'll make it easy for you, God. I'll just adopt my servant Eliezer, and that'll solve the problem. You don't have to get involved in the miracle business. I know that, that gets a little tough. And God says, no, the seed is going to come from your body. And then there's a statement at the end, and most people, if you read it superficially, it looks as if that statement in 15.6 is in response to what God has just promised, but it's not. It's a parenthetical. And it's usually translated, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it or imputed it to him. That's our first mention of imputation. To him for righteousness. This is the verse Paul goes to in um, in Romans chapter four and Galatians chapter three to build the doctrine of imputation and justification. You can't understand what happened to you at salvation. The whole salvation transaction of justification by faith alone without understanding this. And see, this isn't when Abraham is justified. Because it's clear Abraham's already been saved. Abraham was saved in Genesis 12. He was saved in Genesis 13. He was saved in Genesis 14. He's not just now waking up and believing God and getting saved. This is a reference, a reminder of something that Abraham had done that we're not told about in Scripture, but it had occurred before Genesis 12, 1, when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. And it's based on the... The, the grammar of the of the verb for believe here is the Hebrew word aman, which is where we get our word amen, and it's in the hifil stem in the Hebrew, which is a causative stem, and it's an intensified form, and it means to be firm, to be trustworthy, to be safe, and so it has this idea as a perfect tense of completed action, already completed action there. And the idea is that Abraham had already believed God and God had already accounted it to him for righteousness. There's a retranslation here. 
And he had already believed in the Lord. When? Way back before Genesis 12.1. Remember? Abraham had already believed in the Lord, and God had already imputed to him his righteousness, and he's blessing Abraham because Abraham has the righteousness of God imputed to him. That's the basis for all blessing in life. Not our good works, but the possession of the righteousness of God. So that becomes the basis for that first first imputation. Here's our chart. God is perfect righteousness and justice. We're not. All All of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, like filthy rags. So how does God solve the problem? At the cross, he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin is imputed to Christ so that when we trust in Christ, his righteousness is then imputed to us. And it, as it were, covers our unrighteousness so that God isn't looking at our unrighteousness. He's looking at Christ's righteousness, and he declares us to be righteous. Our good deeds... Our goodness has nothing to do with it. No matter how good you are, no matter how much you read your Bible or pray or anything else, it's never the basis of blessing. It's not what's under that line here that is the basis for blessing. It's always the righteousness of Christ that's the basis for blessing in your life. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done at any level. So, second thing, is this vindication, this second kind of justification, and that comes out of James 2.21 and following. There, there's a discussion in James 2 about, you know, how, about, about the relationship of faith and works. And the faith there is not saving faith, getting eternal life, but it is ongoing spiritual life faith. That if you're not trusting God and using the doctrine that you're learning, i.e. hearing, that's the first part of that section in James 1, if you're not listening to the word and applying it, then you're, it's like faith without works. Application's important. Why? Because that's where spiritual growth takes place. So when, when James writes this, some people think, well, there's, he's, he's um, contradicting Paul, but he's not. He says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? What chapter is it where Abraham offers Isaac on the altar? What? 22. Genesis 22. When do you have the key statement of, of Abraham's justification in relation to salvation? When did that happen? When's that stated? Genesis 15, 7. We just looked at it. And it refers to an event that occurred before Genesis chapter 12. So you have these two events. But James isn't talking about what happens in Genesis 15, 6. He's talking about what happens much later at the end of Abraham's life, at the culmination of his spiritual growth, when he has this final last big test and he has to pass it. So he says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Don't you see that faith is working together with his works? And faith was what? Not made perfect in the sense of flawless, 
it's a teleos there. It's the idea faith was brought to completion, maturity by obedience. Then in James 2.23 we read, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What scripture is that? Genesis 15.7. It's fulfilled, in other words, the visible manifestation of the internal reality of his justification occurs in Genesis 22. That's what happens. Our lives are to demonstrate or to testify to or to become visible evidence to the inner working of God in our lives. So there's this initial work of justification by faith, and then as we grow to maturity, we have that evidence before the angels and man and that's this, uh, ev- this second kind of justification before angels and man. In James 2.24, the statement is made, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now this is the key verse for interpreting this, this whole chapter. And it's poorly translated. When you look at that verse, you think that, it says that a man is not, is not justified by faith alone. He's justified by faith plus works, right? That's what it looks like. Because the word only is placed at the end of the sentence. Now, this is going to challenge some of you because you never did like seventh grade grammar. And this is really important. You know, I didn't like it either. I, my mother had a lot of conferences with my sixth grade teacher. Not by faith only. What is only? I mean, you can, if you know anything about English grammar, you can figure this out. What part of speech is only? Sixth grade, what? Adverb. It has an L-Y on the end. It's always an adverb. And what does an adverb do? If what? Modifies a, a noun, right? Oh, a verb. What is faith in this passage? What part of speech is faith in that sentence? And by faith only. It's a noun. Hello. Okay, you don't even need to know Greek to figure out the only is modifying the wrong word here. Monos is the word for only in, in the Greek. It's an adverb, and it doesn't modify the noun faith. Basic grammar. So how should we understand this? Well, it's the last line at the bottom of the slide. The verb is left out. Justify is repeated. You see then that a man is justified by works and justified not by faith alone. That's how it ought to read. The word justification, the verb is left out of the second clause. Second, uh, excuse me, second, yeah, second clause. And it's assumed from the previous clause. So we call that an ellipsis where a word is left out. But it's assumed to be there. The, 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 that last clause should be translated and not only justified by faith. He only modifies the verb justified. See, and what that shows is that there's two kinds of justification. Not a justification by faith and works, but a justification by faith that is the basis for your gaining the imputed righteousness of Christ and a justification by works which is where, as a mature believer, your life gives evidence and testimony to the angels and to man of the outworking of that 
uh, imputed righteousness in your life. So what we see is that Abraham starts off justified by faith and imputed righteousness, and he ends in Genesis 22, but how did he get from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity? What's the process? That's what Hebrews 11 does. Hebrews 11 illustrates that whole process of walking by faith. And as we went through this, what we saw was that Abraham had 13 tests. He didn't pass them all, neither do you, neither do I. And it's these tests that culminate in the test with Isaac. And Hebrews 11:17 refers to this. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that what? God was able to raise him up for the dead. Now you can search the first 21 chapters of Genesis, and you don't even find a mention of the word resurrection. Where did he get this? Abraham meditated on the word of God, which was the promise, and God kept telling him, I'm going to give you a multiplicity, an innumerable innumerable amount of descendants through Isaac, and Isaac your seed will be named. Well, it finally got through to Abraham that if God was promising that he was going to do everything through Isaac, that Isaac had to live long enough to start having babies. And if God told him to kill Isaac, then God was either going to stop him or he would have to bring Isaac back from the dead so that God could fulfill his promise because by Genesis 22, it finally got through Abraham's thick head like it's still trying to get through our thick heads that God really means what he says and he really fulfills his promises and he's faithful and dependable. And so Abraham just says, you want me to go kill him? Okay, great, let's go. He never falters. He never doubts. He understands that, okay, if I sacrifice him, God's going to raise him from the dead. And so he, that's a great picture of what we should do with Scripture, is think about it, interact with it, really meditate on Scripture over time, and you begin to realize these these great little truths that are there, and it builds confidence in your own spiritual growth, which is what happened with, with Abraham. So Abraham was obedient. Now, let me just skip ahead here a couple of these other verses to the test. Okay, I'm just going to run through these very rapidly. We went through them in detail way back when. First of all, there's the test to go to a new land and leave the family behind. God said, leave everybody behind. Leave your family, just pack your bags, and I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to show you. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know the direction and he didn't quite obey God. It's kind of a partial obedience. He took his father and he took his nephew with him. And that became a problem. So he didn't get to the land. He only got partway there. He got to Haran up in northern Syria, northern Mesopotamia. And, in fact, it may even be in, nor- in parts of Turkey. Now, it's right near the border. And so this was a test. It's related to the land promise. And so Abram had to believe God. It was a test of the faith-rest drill. Is he really going to trust God? When his father died, then he moved on and God brought him to the land, but he still had the problem with Lot, which had to be dealt with in Genesis chapter 13 and then later on down into 18. So God had given him this instruction to leave and go to the land 
which I will show you, and there he would make him a great nation and a blessing. So the tests are related to specific promises. You have to know the word of God or you can't pass the test. Second test is in the second part of the uh, chapter when there's a famine in the land. The land is what God promised. So instead of staying where God told him to stay, he goes out and tries to solve the problem himself. He fails this test. He goes down to Egypt. And when you're out of fellowship, you often make decisions that create more complications for your life, more problems for your life, and they come back and bite you in inappropriate places somewhere down the line. And this is what happened with Abraham because he picks up a slave girl uh, and she comes back and later on Sarah decides that she can't have babies so takes, take Hagar and have your, the seed through her. She has Ishmael, then you have the Ishmael-Isaac problem and that leads to the Arab-Israeli uh, problem today. So just because he didn't stay put during the famine, we have all kinds of unintended consequences from our carnality. So he doesn't stay in the land. Uh, When he comes back, God reiterates the promise, to your descendants I will give this land. Third test has to do with grace orientation. He's finally figured out he's going to get the land, so now he can be generous. Lot's herdsmen and his herdsmen are fighting. There's not enough room for both of them in the land. They just had a famine. Now because of the famine, the land can't really support both of them, and so he's not trusting. Uh, Lot's not trusting God. The, the herdsmen aren't. They're fighting. And so God says you've got to separate Lot from your people. And so he gives Lot first option. Pick the best. Whatever you want, take it. And Lot picks the most beautiful section of the land. Those of you who've been there know it's not very beautiful today. It is some of the most God-forsaken real estate on the planet, which tells you that there's been global warming. My, something happened. And man didn't cause it. They didn't have any internal combustion engines back then. It was sin that caused the problem. The sin in Sodom and Gomorrah brought a tremendous judgment on that territory. But Abram passes the test. He's very gracious to Abraham. Let me go back to that. He's very gracious to Abraham. The test is related once again to a promise to the land. Then the fourth test. Let me skip the verses here. That's in Genesis 13. Fourth test was to protect and defend his neighbors. Remember what was the promise? To be a blessing to those around you. And so when there's this invasion from Keterleomer and the uh, four kings of the east, which forms a huge uh, alliance from the uh, Mesopotamian valley. You have the same areas we talk about today, Iraq, Syria, Turkey. That's where these four kings come from. And they invade the land. They come down in, from the north, invade down the Transjordan, do a button hook around uh, the Dead Sea, wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and capture all these uh, people as slaves, including Lot, come back up through the land of Canaan up to a little uh, place in the far north, not too far from uh, the, the uh, Canaanite village of Laish, which later becomes Dan, which is right near an area which is a major piece of contested real estate between the 
between Syria. It's right on the very tip. There's Syria on one side, Lebanon on the other side, and Israel just south. And they always fight over this real estate. Same piece of real estate. Right near there is where Abraham uh, defeated the uh, four kings of the east. Let me see. I've got a map here. Where's my... There we go. Right, uh, let me see, heading back up north. Here's Hotsor, and here you see a little blue line. That's the upper Jordan, and it's just up at the tip of that area where you have uh, Tel Dan today, which is one of the headwaters for the Jordan. That's the area where Abram uh, defeated the kings of the east. Here they are, Arioch, Tidal, Amraphel, and Keterleomer. See, that whole area is the same area we deal with uh, today. Things don't change. Babylon was right over here where Amraphel was from the land of Shinar. Fifth test, the test to express his gratitude to God. He, he defeats them, has this huge uh, uh, bounty, comes back, and he gives uh, 10% to Melchizedek. The sixth test was a test not to worry about the seed, but to trust God. He's concerned about it's not happening yet. Well, maybe we'll adopt Eliezer. So it's related to the seed promise, but he has to continue to trust God for another 10 years. But then they try to do Operation Substitute with Hagar, and that's the seventh test. He fails the test. He listens to Sarah, and that has ongoing problems for the rest of history. The eighth test is a test to be circumcised. And that was a challenge because they had to be, he had to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. Once again, it pictures him being set apart and distinct, and it relates to the uh, promise of the seed. Again, it's faith, rest, drill, trusting God. Genesis 17 is another reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. Then in the ninth test is the test of hospitality. This is when the pre-incarnate Christ, two angels show up disguised, looking like men, and it's grace orientation. Is he going to be a blessing to others? So it's related to that blessing provision. Uh, the tenth test is, is he going to intercede for the bad guys, for the, the five cities of the, of the valley, the plains, the homosexual perverted deviants down there on the Dead Sea? And yet he intercedes. He intercedes for Lot, who has um, abused his generosity in the past, and he intercedes with God, and God says, for a righteous man, he sends the two angels in. He'll deliver them out of the judgment before he brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. As you know from the story, Lot's wife disobeyed, looked back, was turned into a pillar of salt, and the, the rest, Lot and his two daughters, escaped. That's the Sodom interlude. Then there's another test. The 11th test is the test to protect the seed during the visit to Gerar. This is when they go to the area of the Philistines, and once again he lies about Sarah being his wife. She's really his sister. Of course, she was a half-sister, so it's a half-lie. But it was not trusting God during a time of famine. And so he's not. The, the seed is threatened because Abimelech takes Sarah into the harem. Now, we're sure this is going to be Abraham's child, but uh, the text is very clear that uh, Sarah is protected. Uh, Abimelech finds out what's going on and ejects her from the harem. And it's just after that, in the next chapter, 
that uh, Isaac is born. And then the last test is to protect, uh, the next to last test is to protect Isaac from the jealousy of Ishmael. Now he's supposed to tell Hagar to leave so that you don't have this rivalry like Cain and Abel going on inside the family. And then the last test is, is he willing to sacrifice the promised seed in Genesis 22? This relates to the seed promise, calls into play the faith rest drill, and his personal love for God. Is he going to put God first over his love for his son? He's focusing on the future. Hebrews 11.10, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now there's two more things we'll hit quickly. And the, they have to do with blessing. Uh, I mean, with, um, with election, Romans 9 to 11. I don't need a slide for that. Uh, election, Romans 9 through 11. God chose Abraham, but it's not a selection for salvation. It's a selection for a divine purpose in history. It is a corporate group that is selected. They are not selected individually. Romans 9 through 11, as we saw in our study when we really got into it with Isaac, isn't related to justification and salvation election, the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. It is the corporate selection of a people through whom God is going to work. So Abraham is used as a picture of that. And then last of all, he's a picture of missions being a blessing to everyone. It's a command at the end of Genesis 12:2. you shall be a blessing. It's not an, a, an indicative statement. It's an imperative. God mandates that Abraham bless those around him. And at the end of the summary of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 1 through 3, at the end of verse 3, God says, and in you, or it could even be translated as an instrumental, by you, it's the uh, Hebrew preposition b that can be in or with or by. By you, by means of you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the foundation for missions. God is involved in missions through Abraham to reach, through Abraham, all the lost uh, tribal groups in history with, with the gospel. Well, that takes us through Abraham in one hour. Next time we'll come back and we'll look at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph with our final review in Genesis. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these things, to be reminded of how you used uh, all these events in Abraham's life in uh, a way in his life and his spiritual growth, but also as an example to every believer down through the ages, for he is in many ways, the father of believers in terms of his example of justifying faith in Genesis 15:7. Now, Father, we pray that we might be able to think uh, a little more correctly, a little more in depth about Abraham as we go through his life, understanding why these events are revealed in Scripture and their significance for us in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.